turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. We're, uh, we're jumping back in. Jeremy did last week uh, for us. We're jumping back into Luke's gospel. Uh, as we've said all along, the theme verse in Luke is actually one chapter earlier in chapter 29 where Jesus, uh, in talking to some folks in Zacchaeus' house, says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Uh, and we're now into the saving portion of that statement. We're going to spend between now and Easter examining the saving ministry of the Son of Man. Uh, if you want to look at it on a time frame uh, from, from that perspective, on a linear perspective, we're actually spending the next month and a half to two months in the last week of Jesus's life. Every passage that we look at in Luke going forward is going to be after the triumphal entry uh, and leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. So we're going to take a good deal of time uh, and settle into this, pa- this section of Luke's gospel and see the resurrection. So we're going to take a section of Luke's gospel and see if we can unpack some of this uh, aspect of the saving ministry of Christ and how that applies to our lives today. A lot of you who know me know that I grew up here in Kirkwood and our backyard butted up against the Missouri Pacific Railroad tracks. It, it still does. I've moved one house over. I've, I've gone a long, long way in my life. I'm living about 30 yards from where I grew up. Uh, if you saw my big fat Greek wedding, that's what it's like on Nurk Avenue with the Ricks family. We've been there since, the, I don't know, sometime in the early 1900s. But um, when I was a kid, my parents would always warn me, don't play on the tracks. Don't go out and play on the railroad tracks. If you go out and you play on the railroad tracks, uh, you'll be in trouble. You'll, you'll, there'll be ramifications for that. Now, they weren't telling me that because they wanted to rain on my picnic. They were telling me that, and they reinforced that in a whole variety of ways when I was young because they wanted to protect me, because their message was actually life-giving to me. They knew that if, you know, 11-year-old boy meets diesel engine train, they knew who was going to be the winner and who was going to be the loser. And so their warning to me, although it was stern at times and it was very poignant at times, was given because they knew the disastrous results if they didn't warn me and if I didn't listen. The passage of Scripture we're going to look at this morning, Jesus is giving a pretty stern warning. He does not mince his words in this passage we're going to see. But what we need to understand is that what Jesus is trying to do is save people. He's trying to let them see the hope and the life that they can have in him. And he wants them to see that rejecting him is a disastrous decision with ramifications that they really, they, they really don't want to go down that road. And so although this passage has uh, some pretty strong uh, words in the story Jesus is going to tell, it's given, I believe, out of a, of a saving heart, uh, out of a heart that wants to love these folks. So I'm going to read this passage, and then I'm going to walk you through the parable pretty quickly because I want to get to, uh, I only have one point this morning. Now, maybe I'm a little bit rusty. I've been off for three weeks. You know, usually I have three, four, five, ten points. I just have one this morning. But I think it's a very important one, and I want to get to that pretty quickly. So we're going to run through the text, uh, talk about it for a moment, and then talk about the application. So hear the Word of God, Luke chapter 20, uh, and the warning Jesus offered to some of the religious folks of his day. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and lent it out to tenants, then went to another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. 
Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we have said from the ends of the earth to the depths of the sea to the heights of the mountains, your name be praised from the hearts of the strong and the hearts of the weak. Father, I'm sure that represents everybody in this room this morning. Lord, I'm confident that there are many who have had a great week in in fellowship with you and in following you and in trusting you, and they they come to church this morning. They're invigorated. Uh, They're excited about their relationship with you. They see your hand upon their life. Father, my guess is that there there are others of us who barely could work up enough courage to walk through the door. Well, as we said, these are monumental times in the history of our nation, a new president coming into power, churches all around the country this morning standing up and proclaiming we are, for, we are for life. We believe that all life is sacred in God's design. And yet, Father, in the midst of those big events, those big circumstances are our individual lives. As I, as I prayed, Lord, I, I know that some of us have struggled greatly this week. And I know that all of us have one thing in common. We need to hear your word this morning. Not my words, not my thoughts. Those are inconsequential. They carry no weight. It is only your eternal word that can really make an impact on my heart and on our hearts. So, Father, it is that for which we pray. Lord Jesus, we need to see and hear from you. So we pray that through your word and your spirit, you would come and that you would be our teacher. Pray in your name. Amen. Well, this is a pretty simple and direct story. It doesn't take a whole lot of explanation. You uh, heard me read it. You probably grasped it pretty quickly. So I'm just going to take uh, a moment or two and kind of uh, recap it very quickly. Uh, It starts out when Jesus explains there's a business arrangement uh, between a man who plants a vineyard and some tenants. And this was not something unusual in Jesus' day. Lots of wealthy landowners would rent out some portion of their land to folks. And part of the way they would work would be uh, if you rented the land, you would then have to pay some of the, the fruit of the land back to the landowner as your rent. And so this was not uncommon. This was not uh, strange at all. Uh, last week, Cindy's grandfather, who was 98 years old in Minnesota, passed away. He was born in 1910. Think about that for just a minute, everything he saw in his life. Uh, but for about the last 20 or 25 years, he was not able to work the land that he owned. And so the next-door neighbor, who was a young man, uh, was energetic and strong enough to work both pieces of property, and they split the uh, they split what they made. So this is a very common thing in Jesus' day and in our uh, day as well. This is a normal way that business is done. But I want you to see that there's an attitude that's exposed in the following verses because he sends these servants 
to receive uh, what is rightfully his share of the property. And he sends three, t- uh, three servants, and everyone has the same experience. They're each beaten and sent away empty-handed. In other words, there's an attitude here that's exposed. Uh, these tenants didn't want to rent. They didn't want to share. They wanted power to be exclusively theirs. They wanted ownership to be theirs. They were selfish, uh, self-righteous individuals. And we see this attitude that unfolds as what simply should have been a very simple business transaction goes terribly, terribly wrong. But then in verse 13 and following, what we see is these characteristics are contrasted. Uh, the owner of the vineyard says, what shall I do? He's perplexed. He doesn't understand why this deal is falling apart. And so he comes to this conclusion, I'll send my beloved son, and perhaps they will respect him. And what, you, what we see there is a person of great patience. I mean, I don't know that after the, after the first servant coming back, much less the third servant coming back beaten and empty-handed, that I would have had any patience at all. I think I would, have, I would have brought my power and influence and authority to bear pretty quickly. I think my patience would have, would have run dry. And yet here's a man who's incredibly patient. He's a man of character. He's a man of integrity. He thinks, well, maybe for some reason they're a man of integrity. He thinks, well, maybe for some reason they've gotten this wrong. So I'll make sure that they understand it completely and perfectly. I will send my son. Then the tenants see him coming and they say, uh, stay on that screen for just a second. They say, here's the heir. Uh, let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And so they throw him out of the vineyard uh, and are killed. And, and in comparison to this patience and integrity, we see uh, people that are unprincipled and greedy uh, and consumed only with uh, what they can gain. And then in the last part of the story, uh, Jesus says, you know what? Patience uh, has an end. What will this owner do? He will come and destroy these tenants and give the vineyard to others. It says this patience has its limits, and this rejection is not without a ramification. There will be judgment. Justice will prevail in the end. Now that's, again, I don't think I told you anything in the last three or four minutes that you didn't already pick up from the story. What's the meaning for the hearers in Jesus' day? Well, it means simply this. God is represented by the owner. Israel represents the tenants, the people who are renting out the property. The vineyard represents God's blessing, his dwelling place with his people, and the fruit of the vineyard are representative of the worship and honor that is due God. The servants, the people who come, some of the fruit back, those are the prophets, Testament, not in the back of the the Bible, but the back of the first half of the Bible, you'll see some really kind of cool or, or odd names. Uh, Hosea and, and Jonah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Malachi. There are all these weird names. Those guys were prophets, and they were represented by the servants. They were sent to tell the people, here's the right thing to do. And yet the prophets were mistreated in the Old Testament, and in the story here, they're mistreated. And then the, uh, the, the son is representative of Jesus. The son comes to straighten everything out, and he is killed. Well, what's the application? The application simply is this. God is saying through Jesus in this story to the people of Israel, you have not honored me. You have not kept our covenant agreement. I promised you when I brought you out of Egypt that I would care for you, that I would provide for you, that I would make you a great nation, even though you're a very small, insignificant people. But you have not followed me. You have not trusted me. You have not kept our agreement. And if you do not respect the Son, if you do not respect His Lordship, the contract is broken and it will be given to another. 
And so the people who are hearing this story are called to repent. They're called to see their sin. They're called to see that they've misunderstood the identity of Jesus. They're called to see that he's a Messiah, and they're called to turn to him and live. How do they respond? Well, look at verse 16. Verse 16 says this, when they heard this, they said, surely not. In your translation, it might, if you have a Bible that's a little closer to the literal meaning, it might actually say, God forbid. In other words, they understood what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, you're no longer going to be the chosen people of God if you refuse to accept his lordship through me. And the people said, this is insane. This can't possibly be the case. It would almost be like me telling you guys this morning, you know what, if, if the United States doesn't repent, let's say we list two or three sins that, that we're guilty of as a people. If the United States doesn't, doesn't turn course immediately, tomorrow we're going to be destroyed. You're going to say you're out of your mind. That's impossible. That could never happen. Look at all the military strength we have. Look at the, look at the democratic form of government we have. There's nothing that is around us that would tell us that what you're saying is true. And that's how these folks reacted. Are you kidding me? Jesus, you must be nuts. I want to pause here and go down a side road for just one second. I think there are people that God brings into our lives, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, who have the gift of being able to point out things in our lives where we're we're struggling. And the question is not whether or not those folks are gifted to see that and share it with us. The question really becomes, how will I receive that instruction? If someone has come to you, maybe it's a spouse or a sibling or a parent or a friend, and they're coming to you out of concern in Christ, and they warn you about something that's going on in your life, some, some blind spot that you haven't seen, what is your reaction? What's my reaction when somebody comes and says, you know, Tom, we've got we to gotta talk about something. And this might be a little bit painful, but I'm sharing it to you in love. You need to hear it. You know, I kind of fold my arms and say, well, what gives you the right to talk to me? You know, I'm the pastor of the church. Who are you? I get defensive. Brothers and sisters, that's the response that these folks had. And that's a very common response, even among disciples of Jesus. And so this first little side road I want to go down is simply to say, be receptive to the correction that God sends you in the form of your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's just a little, little that, that's kind of, you get that one tossed in for free. Look at verse 17 and 18, though. Verse 17 and 18, Jesus looks directly at them, and he says, now, why was it written? And then he quotes Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What does Jesus do in response to their saying, Jesus, you got to be nuts? He gives them one more chance. He shows his compassion, and he shows his grace. He says, you've missed it. Why do you think the psalmist wrote this? He's trying to warn you. He's trying to save you. How do they ultimately respond to this message? Verse 19 shows their hearts for what it is. The scribes and the chief priests, they want to kill him. They want to take him into custody, and they want to do away with him. And the only reason they don't is because they're afraid of the people. What's the application here? They are showing themselves to be the evil tenets in the story. They're showing themselves to be unbelievers. Now, you get all that. You say, okay, what's in it for us? I, I'm, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I haven't rejected Jesus. I know he's the chief cornerstone. He's the chief cornerstone of my life. I understand he's God's Messiah. I'm following him. So there really isn't an application here for disciples, right? We haven't rejected Jesus. We've embraced him. The application is that we should take this message to unbelievers and let them know that they should put their faith in Christ. And I would say, technically, you're right. 
I would say that this passage has much more to say about people who reject Christ and refuse to put their faith in him. But there's been one nagging question that simply won't leave me alone as I've been looking at this passage. I got to tell you, I almost skipped this passage. I almost decided not to preach on it. As, I, as we're going through Luke, because there, there are several places where I've said, you know, we've got to make up time. And this is one of them I said, you know, I don't know. But, but there's been a question that won't leave me alone. And so I want to share it with you this morning as something that, that I've been wrestling with. And I think it's something that, that all disciples of Jesus wrestle with. And herein is my one point of the whole sermon. What is it in my life that recoils when I see Jesus coming? What is it in my life that recoils when I see Jesus coming? Let me put it in the context of the story. What part of the vineyard do I seize and do away with Jesus's rightful ownership? You see, I understand Scripture to tell me that when I'm in Christ, I'm a new person. But I also understand Scripture to tell me that I'm going to continue my battle with sin and my battle with unbelief, so to speak, until the day I die. I'm not going to be completely perfect until I get to heaven. And between now and then, there are times when I see Jesus coming and I know he's the rightful owner of the vineyard. I know I belong to him. I know that every area of my life is his. And yet I say, Jesus, not this corner. I'm going to hold on to this part. You can work the vineyard over here. I'll work it over here. But I want to be owner of this part. And you stay away. How does this manifest in people's lives. Well, I don't know about yours, but I, I did some looking back at 2008 in my own life and uh, asked myself the question, what, what did 2008 look like for Tom Rick spiritually? And the way I've defined it to myself is that I think it was kind of a spiritually lazy year. I don't think it was a year where it was just awful or terrible, uh, but it feels like I really didn't, uh, I really didn't love Christ with a passion. I really didn't, didn't follow him with a zeal. You know, I, I, I did my own personal devotions. I, I didn't let those slack off. I led my staff the way I, I tried to do a good job uh, with them. I worked with my elders. Uh, I came here and preached on a regular basis. Um, did my writing that I'm, that I'm, that I'm normally do. So I think on the outside, if people looked at me, they would say, you know, he seems to be moving along okay. But yet there were some areas of my life. It was subtle that I think I kind of staked off and said, Jesus, you can't come in here. And I've kind of named two of them as, I, as I've thought through this and the way it's kind of come out. The first one is I've had, a, I would say, a lackadaisical attitude with my finances. And by that, I mean, I, I don't think I wasted money. I don't think I threw money away. But as I, as I look back at my giving last year and I look at, at what I could have done, uh, I don't think I did all I could have done. I don't think I did a terrible job, but I think I could have been more disciplined, and I think I could have done more. The second place that came out of my life that I, as I look back in 2008 was in guarding my tongue uh, and trying to say positive things about people and trying to, uh, any conversation that I walk into, I've always wanted to make it a better conversation for having been there. I've always wanted to try to find the positive things to say about people, and I really got pretty lazy in that area of my life. And so the way it, it came out, as I said, I think I, I, I could have given more to the kingdom of God. I certainly could have gossiped less, and I think I could have been much kinder uh, to my wife, Cindy, as the, uh, as the year unfolded. Now, we have a prophet in our family. Our family's prophet is named Katie. And Katie, was our 22-year-old daughter, was home for Christmas, and Katie helped me see some of these things. She was a gift sent by God 
to help me identify some of this, you know, areas of the vineyard that I kind of tacked off and said, Jesus, she can't come in here. So I'm here to tell you this morning that I welcomed Katie with open arms, that I humbled myself, that I repented, and now I'm a much better Christian than I was before Katie came home. Please don't strike me with lightning. Guys, this is hard. This is where the rubber meets the road. I just said to you, listen when somebody steps into your life and, and, and lovingly tells you something. And I fought with Katie half a Christmas break. She'd bring this up and talk about it, and I'd be like, you know what? I, I just really don't want to hear it. And it really wasn't until she left to go back to school that things kind of settled down. And God said, you know, Tom, I, I sent a messenger to you. Why weren't you willing to listen? It's almost as if you beat the servant up and threw him out of the, out of the vineyard. Why won't you pay attention? I'm trying to save you from pain, from struggle, from suffering. I'm trying to send a friend into your life. You know, Young Life has this, uh, has this phrase, um, earn the right to be heard, which I think is a tremendous phrase. If you're going to minister to high school students, you better hang out on their campus. You better get to know them. Now you have to Facebook and text and do a whole lot of other stuff. Um, somebody needs to write a Emily Post deal on when you can text and when you can't, but that's a story for another day. Um, but you better spend time, and you better earn the right to be heard. But I have the other side of that coin, and I don't think Young Life is going to embrace this, but this is Tom's other side to earn the right to be heard coin. Have the sense God gave a mule and listen. You know, if you hit a mule in the head with a two-by-four, you're going to get his attention, and he's going to do our lives from time to time out of love. Say, you know what? I really don't want to hear that. I want to live my life the way I want to live it. I have a little... Uh, I don't know, a frame. It's not a picture, but it's got word. It's got a couple paragraphs on. This sits on my nightstand, okay? It sits right next to my bed. My buddy Chuck Nieder sent it to me, and it's a couple of paragraphs from a guy who was a contemporary of Bernard of Clairvaux back in the 1100s, and the language has been changed to make it, okay, you know, able for us to understand it, because if you read it in the Old English, you wouldn't get it. I, I didn't get it. Uh, so my buddy Chuck Nieder sent this to me, and he put it in the modern English, and it says this, A spiritual friend is one who is loyal and has right motives, discretion, and patience in order to help their friend know God better. Spiritual companionship is a process of both nurture and of confrontation. A true friend in Christ will wake me up, help me grow, and deepen my awareness of God. For God's love is mediated through human relationships by those who care for me, encourage me, and desire my affections to become God-centered. This sits right by my head every night. When I wake up in the morning and turn off the alarm clock, it's the first thing I see. And yet, for the better part of the last 12 months, I've ignored it. Friends, Jesus is telling these folks in his day, and he's telling us today something very profound. He is warning us because he loves us, because he cares for us. What, are, what is the area in my life or areas in my life that recoil when I see Jesus coming? Now, what do I do if I see this creeping into my life? Does this mean I've lost my salvation? Does it mean I'm, I'm not a disciple anymore? Does it mean that the blood of Jesus doesn't cover me and, I, and I'm outside of God's grace? Absolutely not. Jesus' death on the cross paid for your sins once and for all. And yet, if we allow these sin patterns to continue in our lives, if we don't repent, then we miss recognizing the fact that Jesus' coming is to change my life. It's not just to save me, but it's to grow me up and to conform me to His image. It's to make me like Him in every area of my life. 
And so we need to be aware, we need to be alert, we need to be on our toes, we need to be asking this question, what is it? Where is it that I recoil when I see Jesus coming? Because if I ignore this pattern in my life, if I ignore this attitude, it will take root in my heart. It will push away my love for Jesus. And it will cause harm in my relationships with others. It will make me less impactful for the gospel. My witness for Christ will go downhill. My ability to love others unconditionally by His grace and by His mercy will suffer because I have to spend my time protecting my ground instead of surrendering to Christ and following Him and letting Him make an impact through my lives. We have to be careful because this is very subtle. And it can creep into our lives if we're not careful to be on our toes. Has, a, has anybody heard of this guy, Marcus uh, Schrenniker? Anybody ever heard of Marcus Schrenniker? You might not recognize that name. I didn't know a thing about this guy. He's from Indiana. I didn't know a thing about him until a few days ago. Marcus Schrenniker is 38, was the guy who got on the plane in Florida, and it took off, and then he faked the distress call. I think it was on Tuesday this week, and parachuted out of the plane, and the plane crashed, and he, and he faked his death. Now, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I wonder what I'll do today. I think what I'll do is I'll go get a parachute and a plane, and I'll fake my death. Nobody, nobody starts there. So I went back and I did some research on this guy. Insurance regulators in Indiana had charged Schnedeker with misleading customers and misappropriating hundreds of thousands of dollars in the Indianapolis Star reported. da 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 it goes on. Now, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to now steal several hundred thousand dollars. It had to have started with one business deal, someplace where he was having a bad day. And he let down his guard. And I, it might, he's 38. It might have been 15 years ago. It might have been five years ago. Who knows? But somewhere it started with a very small seed in his life. And he decided that he wasn't going to listen to anybody who may have tried to correct him on that. And he started down a pathway. And once he started down that pathway, he couldn't stop himself. I, I don't know this guy. I wouldn't know him if he walked in the room. I have no idea what he looks like. I, I heard about it on the news. I didn't see it. But I can tell you that that's what happened in his life because that's human nature. That's our sinful side. And if we do not allow Christ to come in and deal with the small portions of our life, the little tiny, you say, you know, it's just a little piece of the vineyard, Tom. It's not a, it's not a big piece. It's just my thought life in certain situations. Or it's just, you know, my proclivity to, to kind of talk about people. I only do it every once in a while. It's not that bad of a thing. If you let that go, if I let that go, it will blossom full bloom. And one day spiritually, you'll be jumping out of an airplane, faking your own death because <laughs> you're totally hopeless and you have nowhere else to turn. As individuals, are we staking out areas of the vineyard that are ours? As a congregation, as a spiritual family, are we saying, Jesus, you can come this far, but no further? If we do, we need to understand that if we allow this to go unchecked and unchanged by the power of the gospel, we will stagnate as disciples. We will struggle as a spiritual family. But the other side is this. There is a flip side to this coin because this is an invitation of Jesus to life. It's an invitation for the people of his day, and it's an invitation for us to not reject him, to not suffer those ramifications, but to turn to him and live. If we identify even these subtle areas of rebellion in our lives, if we willingly confess them to the Lord, and we willingly confess them not only to Jesus but to one another, Jesus gains more control of the vineyard. He is the heir. He is the owner. And his ownership promises life 
and care and spiritual nurture that allows us to be in a relationship with him where when we do see him coming, even if he's coming to correct us, we say, Jesus, you're always welcome. This is not my life. It's yours. It belongs to you. Show me where you want to till the soil of my soul to correct me, to grow me, to point me towards spiritual maturity. Because I know when you do that, it gives life to me and it allows me to pass that on to others. Let's pray together. Just for a moment in our prayer time, I want to invite you to um, pray the question that I asked this morning. What is it in my life that recoils when I see Jesus coming? I want to give you a moment of silent prayer just to ask Jesus to show you. You might not have any of those. You, you may be really in tune with the Lord this morning. So praise God for that. Uh, but I would dare say that some of us already know some of them. But let me just give you a moment to, uh, to ask God to reveal that to you. If, uh, if God's allowed you to identify or God's allowed you uh, or has identified for you one or two or three or more areas in your life where that's true, where you say, you know, Lord, I really am like the tenants. I want to control it. It's, I want it to be mine. Uh, the next thing I would invite you to do is confess that to him as sin, as evil, as harmful, as wrong, as something that's going to hurt you, uh, to own it, to not excuse it, to not pass it off to somebody else and say, well, I wouldn't be this way if this hadn't happened. I want to give you an opportunity to confess it to the Lord Jesus. The third and final part of this prayer is this. Um, I would invite you, and you don't have to do this, but I I think it's the better part of wisdom for me and for you. If God's shown you something this morning, I want to invite you to say, by the time I'm back here next Sunday, and this prayer might end up being a mass exodus from Green Tree, (laughs) but by the time I'm here next Sunday, I will confess this sin to a friend. I will find a safe place somebody who loves me. Maybe it's somebody who's been trying to point this out to you and they've been trying to do it out of love and you have been ignoring it. Uh, but I will try to find a safe place to confess to a brother or sister Christ, not so that they can beat me up with it, but so that they can rejoice with me that God's shown it to me and that he owns a little bit more of the vineyard now and so that they can uh, help me uh, be accountable to that. And they can from time to time ask me how I'm doing and pray for me and encourage me. So let me invite you. You don't have to. Uh, if it scares you too much, that, that's okay. But let me invite you to make that the last part of your prayer that by this time next week, you'll share that with somebody. Lord Jesus, if anything's been revealed to anybody this morning, it's because of you, not because of me. It's because of your word and your spirit. And if that's happened, then that message is from heaven. 
and message from heaven is always a message of life. Might mean that I have to die to some sin in my life, but it's always life-giving. So, Father, I pray that we would recognize that and that you would give us the grace and the strength through your spirit and your word to apply it to our lives, to confess it to you, to confess it to one another, in order that as individuals and as a congregation, we might live. Amen.